Can you hear me? That's good. How's everybody doing? Yeah? Are you, are you, are you excited? Are you excited about life? Are you excited about tomorrow? Do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? No. I don't know either. What have you knew? <laughs> oh, man. I tell you, what a, what a last couple of weeks. Uh, taking around, taking in some of the headlines around the world. Uh, you know, Russia's on the move again. Uh, I just got used to them being our friends. <laughs> no, they're still our friends. <laughs> and the lost airplane, have they found it yet? Yes. Yes. They found an oil slick. They found an oil slick. Oh, no. They found oil on land? No. Oh. Ugh. Somewhere over in, in uh, Malaysia? Yeah. Yeah, well, we got lots of stuff going around the world. Uh, so, great to see you guys. If you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 32 and 33. Got some medicine on board this morning, which is making me feel really happy. <laughs> Let's all just take hands, shall we? Let's just love each other. <laughs> if you come in for pastoral counseling this week while I'm on my meds, I'll just smile at you and say, take hands. Isn't life better? <laughs> Make love, not war. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jesus, help me. <laughs> God, help me. Uh, Lord, I pray you'd help us to open our hearts now as we just come to the Word of God here, that you'd uh, uh, not only point out the things that you'd have us uh, look at, but Lord, that uh, in this exchange, we would grow deeper in our experience and hunger of you. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have ever played that game, Would You Rather? I mean, I, few of you, you know. So few of you have not. If you have small kids and they're just narked up on chocolate milk and they're bouncing around and you need some sort of distraction, there's no better game in the world to play than Would You Rather. And I've got three boys between the ages of six and nine and we'll be seating in a restaurant and they'll be bouncing around and hey, I got an idea to calm them down. Let's play Would You Rather. And, you know, so Tanya and I, we always start out, you know, would you rather go camping on the beach or would you rather go camping in the mountains? You know, kind of, kind of really, you know, get, you know, and then it gets to them and they're like, would you rather, rather, you know, eat a worm or eat poo? You know, and it's just, <laughs> what is it? You know, they, 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 boys, little boys go straight to turds all the time. And so... You know, but, 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 last time we played this, I, I came out, you know, with, with what I thought was the doozy. Would you rather have to ask for forgiveness or would you have, rather have to forgive somebody? In other words, would you rather be the one who did something wrong and you have to ask for forgiveness or would you rather be the one wronged and you give forgiveness? All right? 
So we're going to do our first ever Life Point Church straw poll. How many of you would rather have to give forgiveness? Go ahead and raise your hand. You'd have to give it. As opposed to how many of you would rather uh, be be in a situation where you have to go and ask for forgiveness? Ooh. Now, let me ask you a question. Why would so many of you rather be on the end of having to forgive him? That means you've been wronged. What, 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 what's, I mean, just go ahead and shout it out there. Why, why did you raise your hand on that one? It's easier. It's easier. At least I wasn't wrong. It's easier. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I myself am on the end of giving forgiveness, but it's all because I love the control. I mean, when somebody's asking you for forgiveness, you have such power. More power than you had a moment before, you know? And, and uh, you know, people are throwing themselves at your mercy. But the fact of the matter is, I would actually agree with those of you who would say asking for forgiveness is probably much harder. You're admitting guilt, right? You're admitting you did something wrong. How many of you love to say, I did something wrong? I don't like to do that, you know? Unless it's going to benefit me somehow. There are times, you know, let's face it, we say we're sorry because we know we're going to get something good in return, right? Uh, but, but by and large, admitting guilt, admitting you've done something wrong, uh, you know, having to ask and accept forgiveness. And then, of course, what really is kind of implied every time you ask for forgiveness? That you're what? That you're not going to do it again, do it again Right? And of course we say that, but do we really mean it? Some of you are going, yeah, I mean it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we do mean it. I think we do at all intents and purposes. You know, we, we ask for forgiveness with that sense of I'm not going to do this anymore. And that's, you know, kind of that third tier of asking. Well, interestingly enough, we're wrapping up today uh, our series of messages on resolving conflict. And really, of all the things we've gone through, we started with Adam and Eve, we went and weaved through most of the Bible, it seems like. But the fact of the matter is you really can't wrap up such a topic as biblical conflict resolution and not address the most powerful component of it, which is forgiveness. Forgiveness. At some point, as we work out our fights... At some point, as we work out our relationship with the Lord, at some point, the word forgiveness comes into play. I'd like to tell you a story. It begins in Genesis chapter 3. It actually begins earlier than that, but we're going to begin. We're going to take off in Genesis 32. I want you to imagine that you are one of two brothers or two sisters, and your father is a very successful businessman here in, in Bakersfield. Uh, you make, I don't know, you make something, but it's very successful and everybody wants to buy it. You make Bakersfield sunscreen, <laughs> particularly for Bakersfield sun. And everybody in the city loves it, wants to buy it, and your business, your dad's business is prosperous. And here's the deal, though. In Bakersfield, if you're the older sister or the older brother, you get two-thirds of the business. If you're the younger brother or brothers, you get that split between the rest of you. So just because someone was first born, they get 66% share in the company. 
Say it's a $10 million company. They're getting $6.6 million, and you are splitting with the rest of your brothers the other $3.3 million. I know for many of you, you'd say, I'm good. $3 million is all I need. But let's now say you're the older brother, and your younger brother takes advantage of your aging, halfway senile father and gets him to sign a contract which hands the majority interest of the company over to him instead of you. That might not make some of you upset, but in a small town and in small villages, that would be seen as one of the greatest forms of disrespect you could give. Because you see, in the ancient Jewish culture, the firstborn was not just the beneficiary. He was the leader of the family. He had the birthright, the respect that goes with the birthright to go forward. And this is exactly what happened in the ancient relationship between Jacob, who was one of those biblical patriarchs, and Esau, his brother, often attributed as a biblical villain. But we'll see he actually wasn't that big of a villain. Jacob dresses up like Esau. Esau was a hairy man. Is what the Bible describes hair all over him. And so Jacob puts hair all over his body, goes into his father, who cannot tell the two brothers apart because he's so old and his eyes have dimmed. Jacob goes in and deceives his father and gets the majority interest, gets the birthright, and tricks Esau out of his inheritance. He does this behind his back. He does this cold and malicious, and he does it and then when Esau tries to fix it, Isaac says, I can't. I've already spoken. Your brother has the blessing. And Esau is justifiably mad. He's not just mad over the money. He is mad because in front of the whole town, his brother has just severely disrespected him. There's no way to save face. And in this culture, saving face is everything. Your reputation, your ego, what people think of you, how people know you, is everything in this village culture. Jacob has just done the unthinkable in terms of destroying your, your image as a man. And if this goes unchecked, people are going to begin to go, wow, I guess Esau really wasn't much anyway. Esau is mad. He's so mad He's not yelling. He's not smiling. He's not doing much of anything. There's such a stone-cold look on his face when he looks at his brother. He just walks right by him and says not a word. And Jacob's mother knows exactly what's going to happen. Esau's going to kill him. She picks up on it. She catches wind of it. So she brings Jacob who she instigated to do the whole thing in the first place, and says, Jacob, you got to get out of here. Your brother's going to kill you. I mean, this is going to blow up and be something we do not want this to. You've got to go. Go back to my homeland. Hide out there for a while so that Esau can get over this because he's coming after you, bro, son. <laughs> and so Jacob leaves, never apologizing to Esau, never apparently really being very sorry for what he had done. And in fact, 
he kind of continues his cheating and swindling ways when he goes and lives with his uncle Laban. His uncle Laban matches him and you know, cheats him maritally and cheats him a whole bunch of different ways. And finally, after 20 years, Jacob is realizing, I've had enough. I can't live with Uncle Laban. If I thought I was bad, this guy's 10 times worse. There's only one problem. Jacob does not have a lot of places he can go. But he has one. If he can summon up the courage, he can't go west. For to the west are where his ancestral lands lie. There's only one problem. Esau, the brother with murderous intent in his eyes, lives there as well. 20 years have passed since the two have seen each other. 20 years have gone by for Jacob to think about why he dressed up like his brother, <coughs> why he outright lied to his father and sealed the blessing with a kiss on his father's forehead. He wondered what might have happened if he had only waited on God to get his due. Jacob, as he crossed over into Canaan, would bow down and pick up a piece of dirt from his homeland, the land where he had been raised with Isaac and Rebekah, realizing that he was a wanted man in this town. And fear began to overwhelm him. One question remained in his mind. How will Esau respond after all these years when he sees Jacob with all of his herds and all of his servants coming toward him? So he sends a runner. And the runner comes back with the most terrible news. Jacob, your brother, he is coming but he has 400 men with him and they're all on horses and they have really shiny swords. And Jacob puts his hands, his head in his hands and wonders what to do for Esau appears to still be angry after all these years. So Jacob does three things. First, he divides his family into two groups. I don't know if I like this. In fact, I think I'm really sad that Jacob, as a biblical example, did this. But his reasoning is this. If Esau attacks one half of the family, I'll still be able to survive with the other half. I'll lose one wife and half the kids. I'll still have one wife and the other half the kids. So he divides his uh, uh, family and his assets in half so that Esau will have to spend time attacking one while he escapes with the other. But the second thing he does, and this is most important, Esau, finally at the end of his rope, finally after 20 years of thinking about this, finally after looking at his life, finally after being such a scoundrel, he crosses over the river and Jacob prays to God. I can't tell you how many times I've had either people in my office or people come in, I'm in a fight. I want to leave my wife. I can't stand my son. I, you know, and I'm just so mad. And they just keep going and going and going. And about 20 minutes or a half hour into it, I'll ask the question, well, have you prayed about it at all? No. Well, 
Do you think that might be good? I don't want to pray. I don't feel like praying right now. I'm too mad. All right, breathe. Let me give you a cookie. Can you give me a cookie? Make you happy? Okay? We're not mad anymore? All right. Let's pray. This is exactly what Jacob finally does. He gets alone with God and he prays. If you look in your Bible in Genesis chapter 32, just look at verses 9 through 12. I won't read them. I will summarize them for you. The first thing he does is he remembers God's promises. The second thing he does is he states his fears. The third thing he does is he prays for deliverance from Esau. And then the fourth thing he does is he reminds God of his faithfulness. Why is this important? This is essentially what Jacob is saying. God, this is what you said. This is what you said. You said you would be with me. You said you would not leave with me. You said you'd be my God. God, this is what you said. And then he goes, but God, this is, I'm afraid. I'm afraid this man, he probably wants to kill me. He wanted to kill me then. He probably wants to kill me now. And he says, God, this is what I want you to do. I want you to deliver me from the hands of Esau. And then he reminds God who he is. God, I ask this and say this. Because I know who you are. You're real, you're powerful, and you are good. So please help me. And then Jacob does the third thing. He sends gifts to Esau. Oh, how many times have you or I been in the doghouse with somebody? I mean, I know me, you know, ah. I wish I was as nice as all of you. You guys are 20 times nicer than me. Sometimes I can get so upset. I say things, I do things, and I'll hurt my wife's feelings. And so I do what any good husband does. I don't ask, I don't apologize right then and there. I go out to the Save Mart and I get a bouquet of flowers. How many of you husbands have ever done that? Or, or maybe some chocolates. Or maybe you, you get say, hey, we're going out to dinner tonight. Dinner and a movie. You know that date night that we've been planning for six months? Jacob is essentially doing the same thing. He's trying to buy Esau off with presents. But there's only problem, one problem. This is my point today. My life point is this. You can't buy forgiveness. True forgiveness must be free. Jacob's motives are transparent. But the fact of the matter is, Esau doesn't need any more animals. And for that matter, neither does God. God doesn't need us to try to buy off his forgiveness or buy off his love or buy off his trust. What God and Esau want are really both the same thing. Just a, a humble heart and a broken spirit that comes up and says, I'm sorry. But Jacob hasn't quite figured that out yet. And so Jacob is sending the animals ahead. Hundreds of donkeys and camels and goats and sheep and all these things. And, and when they arrive, Esau's looking at them and Jacob's servant says, these are a gift from your brother Jacob. And then Jacob spends that night with God. The before and after picture couldn't be more uh, dramatic Jacob begins the night fearful, anxious, guilt-ridden, unsure of himself, worried, alarmed. 
He is pulling his hair out because he realized he is in a mess that by his own strength he cannot get out of. And then interestingly enough, God shows up that night in the form of a man. And, and for those of you who think God is just, you know, oh, he's so nice and he just hugs everybody and Jesus loves the little children. You know, I know a lot of us have this impression of God that he's like that, but what God did with Jacob with that night is he puts his judo moves on him, right? God breaks out and wrestles with Jacob all night and Jacob is wrestling back. Jacob perceives that it is God and Jacob says, God, I will not let you leave until you bless me. I'm at the end of my rope. My life is almost over. This guy probably wants to kill me. I got nothing to lose. I will beat you up, God, unless you bless me. God, I need you to do something in my life. And so God does something very interesting. He does three things in Jacob's life that morning. First of all, he gives him a new name. He says, you are no longer Jacob. You'll be called Israel, for you have struggled with God. Second thing he does is he gives him a new limp, a new humility. Jacob, you are not going to do this in your own strength. In fact, you are going to be limping when you go approach Esau. But the third thing he does is he gives him a new confidence. Here's the thing. When we go before God and we've got an issue we're facing, what we often want God to do is give us certainty. God, I want you to email me Write it in the sky, show up, and tell me everything is going to be all right. But those of you who live long enough know God doesn't do that. God gives us confidence, but he won't always give us certainty. It's like the three, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, when they were facing the Persian emperor, and the Persian emperor was about to execute them by throwing them in a furnace. And the three men looked at him and said, we believe that God will deliver us from you, but even if he doesn't, what does that statement say? It says we don't have certainty. We have confidence that God's going to deliver us from you, but we don't have certainty. We don't know how he's going to do it. We would like for him to do it right now, but even if you've got to throw us in, we know somewhere, somehow it's going to be done. Sometimes God saves us from our circumstances, and sometimes, like the three boys who got thrown in the furnace, God saves us in our circumstances. God joined them in the furnace. And this is what he does with Jacob. God joins with Jacob as he goes out to meet Esau. And God's done it before. You know, we, we, we've seen throughout the Bible, God had snapped his fingers and, and, and enemy armies just scattered. That's called being saved from your circumstances. And then there's other times where God says, no, they're not going to scatter. I want you to go face him, but I will be with you. And here's what happens in Jacob. He stops playing games. He stops sending gifts. His fears are probably still there, but his confidence has changed. He knows what he did was wrong, but he also knows that God is still with him. That his wrestling that night did more for him than 20 years of thinking ever could. And so Jacob looks up, and there's Esau with his 400 men. 
And he goes in front of his brother and he bows down and says, my Lord, I am your servant. He humbles himself before his brother. He gives him the birthright back. My Lord, I am your servant. And at that moment, Esau has an opportunity like none other. Pull out that sword, one swift swing, all his problems are solved. 20 years of hatred. But Esau doesn't do that. Esau picks Jacob up and embraces him and forgives him right there on the spot. It's a wonderful story of how we can truly let it go. But I want you to pay attention to Esau's first question in the beginning of Genesis 33. What is he, what's the first thing he say to Jacob? He doesn't say, hey, you want to know how Abraham's doing? Abraham's dead. Hey, you want to know how Isaac's doing? Hey, you want to know uh, how, how the land, how the family business is going? Hey, you want to know what happened to mom? Hey, you want to know what we did with your old tent? Esau doesn't go down any of those roads. You know what he says? He says, Jacob, why did you send the animals? Jacob, why did you think that my forgiveness needed to be bought? Because you cannot buy forgiveness. If it isn't free, it isn't forgiveness. And so Jacob humbly says, uh, basically comes clean. says, God has blessed me. I wanted to bless you. Now, the story is very interesting because when the time comes, Esau invites Jacob to go back and live with him. And Jacob agrees. But when the time comes, Jacob tells one more lie to his brother. Even after all the forgiveness, even after the hugs, even after his encounter with God, Jacob is still not perfect. Isn't that great? Even after everything God does in our lives, we, we still are not perfect, and God is still with us. Jacob lies to Esau even after Esau has just spared his life and forgiven him of everything. Esau says, come south with me to Seir. But when Jacob starts moving, he goes west to Succoth. But see, that's where I think the Bible acknowledges the reality of our real world. 20 years had taken its toll. The emotional and cultural differences between Esau and Jacob were there. In fact, maybe Jacob was thinking, Esau, I love the invitation, but let's face it. Our rivalry could start right where it left off if I go back with you. Who knows what exactly was Jacob's motive? But here's the big point. Forgiveness is not the same as trust. And while Jacob had received Esau's forgiveness, it would take a long time before they'd have trust again. And they couldn't do that living next to each other. Well, there's four points I want to bring from this, and then we'll, then we'll go home. And the first point is this. If forgiveness isn't free, it isn't forgiveness. <laughs> a few years back, uh, I had, I had a, a man, uh, a man who, a successful, financially successful man, attack me in my ministry. And it, was, it ended up being a big misunderstanding. And I, I didn't even realize that the object of the attack was me for quite a long time. But it, it began coming to me from multiple people 
This man is attacking you. This man wants your ministry. This man wants to see you fired. This man, you know, I mean, he would, when it finally hit me, I got furious. And I became like Esau. I didn't say a word, but I glared at the man. And I realized what it was doing in my heart. So finally, I appealed to Caesar, who was my senior pastor. And I took it to him, and we had a meeting. And, and we were going through the chain of events. And finally, I realized that on the day that this great offense was supposed to happen, I was not even there. I was directing the summer camp over in Spokane. Oh, I felt so good in that moment. I could prove it. I was not even there. I had the alibi of alibis. We walked out of the meeting, but there was no real apology asked for. It was just, oh, okay, I'm clarified now. And I struggled with that, as any person would, because I was attacked. This guy was going after my job and attacking my reputation, my character. But over time, he approached me. Hey, Tom, hey, you know, if you got some kids that need a scholarship for camp, I'd, I'd love to donate some money for that. Hey, if you ever need anything in your youth ministry, let me know. I'd like to, I'd like to give some money to the youth ministry. And uh, hey, I know you got this mission trip coming up. You just let me know what amount. You need me to write the check out, I'll write the check. But there was something still there. Would I have liked the camp scholarships? Absolutely. Would I have liked to have someone fund half of our mission trip? Boy, that would take a stress off my mind, yeah. But I couldn't, I couldn't take it from him. I couldn't receive it. Because there was no forgiveness on my part, just to be honest, and no seeking of it from his. Does somebody always have to seek it? Probably not, but I just couldn't. I felt like I was trying to be bought off. I felt like the dude knew what he did was wrong, and now he's trying to make it up by writing a check to the youth ministry. I struggled with it. I never received it. He began to tell people, I feel like Tom's hanging on to this man. He can't let it go. He won't let me help him. And he was probably right. But at the end of the day, I felt like what I really wanted more than a check was just for him to come to me and say, hey, you know what? I was wrong. I'm sorry I did this. I didn't realize you were out of the town, out of the city, on the other side of the state. I, you know, this was no small thing. This guy really went after me. There couldn't be trust. And so if forgiveness isn't free, it isn't forgiveness. Forgiveness can't be bought. Second thing is sometimes it's more difficult to be forgiven than it is to forgive. I know that early on, before my ministry life, I was in another business, real estate and stuff, and I, I, had, I had snookered some things, and I, I ended up uh, needing to come up with $10,000 in nine months. So I, I left real estate, I went and got a job, and, and it was a hard job. I had to travel all around the country. I didn't see my friends, my church, my family, nothing, but I, I, I was able to put a lot of money away. But I remember that whole nine months feeling like I had a debt over me and it just weighed on me like a ton of bricks and I remember when I finally paid that debt just how free I felt and I remember thinking I would rather be indebted to than be in debt sometimes I think asking for forgiveness 
is almost harder than giving it. Third thing I've noticed about this story is sometimes forgiveness is an event and sometimes it's a process. Now, when I say sometimes it's a process, that's not an excuse to hold on to bitterness. I've had people say, well, I'm in the process of forgiving him or oh, I'm in the process of forgiving her. Well, that can be a cop-out for bitterness. But in all reality, there are things that happen to us that one event might not heal. It might be a process of working it out where we come to forgiveness over the course of time rather than through one event. And perhaps that's what Jacob and Esau was showing us. And then finally, you know you have forgiven when you can bless the other person. You know that you have forgiven them when you can turn around and ask God to bless them. When you can turn around and pray for good things to happen to them. When you can turn around and say, I hope they prosper. I hope they're happy. I hope that they live in blessing. That enemy that hurt you, insulted you, forgiveness, and you know you've forgiven them when you can turn around and bless them. I think of Jesus. When Jesus was hanging from the cross, bleeding and in pain, there was a crowd of people insulting him while he was suffering. And come on, all right. You got what you wanted. The man's dying. But they couldn't even just let him die. While he's dying, they're insulting him. Those people hated him. They wanted to hurt him to his dying breath so that he would feel pain. And what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In getting over this situation I told you earlier about the man who was going after me, at some point, that is how I truly released it. I said, Father, for all my enemies, forgive them for there's probably a degree of this they don't even realize they're doing. They don't even get it. We think our enemies know exactly what they're doing. They probably did. The Jewish leaders didn't. They didn't realize that the prophet Moses had prophesied that was to come to them. They just hung him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's blessing. He's saying, God, don't, don't hurt them. Don't punish them. Don't go after them. I know they're hurting me. I know I'm your son. But don't do it, God. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. For they know not what they do. That's how God works with us. And to truly become like Jesus, we have to learn to forgive. Amen? Bow your heads with me. We're just up forward. This morning, I'd like to make just a very simple invitation. And that is the invitation to bless those who have hurt you. Right now, in your heart, maybe you got one or two people. You just need to forgive. Doesn't mean there's trust. Doesn't mean that what they did wasn't horrible or wrong or hurtful. It just means that you're going to make a decision to not let it hurt you anymore.
and to not seek retribution toward them. That they don't have to pay you off or buy you gifts or even say they're sorry. But that right now, like Esau, long before he saw Jacob, you make the decision, you're going to forgive him. You're going to forgive him. And then mouth the words, God, bless them. I pray that you can do that with me this morning. In doing that, we become more like Jesus. We become more like Jesus. And confidence and blessing is all we'll know. One final thing before we close. We're going to close with a song. I'd like to just make a simple invitation for those of you who have never taken the step to pray to receive Jesus to give you an opportunity to do that. Uh, we at Life Point Church, we don't believe you're born into Christianity by any means, that nobody is, but that if you'd like to make a choice uh, to follow Jesus and to make him your God, to allow the witness of the Holy Spirit to rise up in you, uh, then why don't you go ahead and just pray this with me and make that decision to enter into the family of God through Christ. Just go ahead and repeat after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I ask for forgiveness of my sins and I make you my Lord. I receive you into my heart. I receive your spirit into my life and I decide to follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that for the first time, it's important that you come and tell me. Uh, part of being a follower of Jesus is telling people. So I'd really like you to tell me this morning. For the rest of us, why don't we all rise together and we will sing one more song and close church the way we should.